There are a lot of books that I've been excited to cover on the show for a long time. In some cases, I'm excited about them because I loved them myself when I was a kid. In others, I've heard lots of buzz about them, some good, some bad, and I want to find out what all the fuss is about. And sometimes, a book just has a reputation. If I'm being totally honest, those books are kind of the ones I live for most. Today's title has quite the reputation. We are talking all about Judy Blume's 1975 young adult novel, Forever. You may know it better as The Judy Bloom Sex Book. And it kind of is the Judy Bloom sex book. It's the story of Catherine, a high school senior who is in a new relationship with Michael, a boy from another school, and the way she navigates the loss of her virginity. As readers, we are right there alongside Kath as she considers whether or not she's ready to have sex with Michael, as she does have sex with Michael, and as she deals with the high and low points of their relationship once the deed is done. As you might guess from the title, Kath and Michael think that they have a real shot at being together forever. But is that really in the cards for them? You'll have to read the book or at least listen to this episode to find out. Given the subject matter of forever, it should hardly come as a surprise that we talk a lot about sex on episode 75. But we also talk about whether or not this book should really have to carry the reputation as the Judy Bloom sex book all these years after it was published. We discuss the pressures that so many feel to lose their virginity before they graduate from high school and the ways in which different teens react more broadly to the end of their high school career. We debate whether or not Michael is actually a believable heartthrob and recall the romanticism of dating someone from another school. We consider the ways in which various messages about sex and relationships from a teen's parents can influence their decisions and try to assign some historical context to the evolution of safe sex conversations over the last few decades. We talk about the importance of redistributing sexual power and agency to teen girls and giving all teen readers the resources they need to protect themselves from unplanned pregnancy and STDs. There's some awkward laughter about Judy Bloom's deliciously cringeworthy and so-so-real depictions of those weird first times. Generally, I found Forever to be a healthy, relatable, and non-judgmental story about consensual teen sex, but obviously that doesn't mean the conversation about it is especially simple or clear-cut. I couldn't possibly be more excited to introduce all of you to today's guest, Emily Edwards. Emily is the host of the podcast, Fuck Boys of Literature, which can be found on iTunes and most other podcatchers under the name FBOL, and on social media under at fuckboysoflit. And that's boys spelled B-O-I-S. If you love SSR, I have a feeling that you're going to love FBOL too. Here's the iTunes description. Fuckboys of Literature is a weekly literature podcast about books, comedy, and pop culture. This classic literature podcast is saying what you wish you could say in English class. From spotlighting poet Lord Byron, the ultimate FBOL, to discussing writers, love interests, God, monsters, and fans, we are discussing all of the FBOLs you love to hate and hate to love. Are you hooked? I thought so. When Emily isn't researching or ripping into the worst people in literature, she's a freelance writer for anyone who will hire her. She also happens to be an amazing SSR guest, and I think you're really going to love this app. If you love all of our SSR apps, there are a few ways you can show your support. Let's start with a fun one. Grab your phone, yes, right now, and take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it. Now, share it to your Instagram stories, tagging at SSRpod before you post. Congratulations, because you have just helped me spread the word about the podcast. You can also help by posting five-star ratings or reviews to iTunes, shopping our merch line at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, or joining the Patreon family as a monthly sponsor. Patrons commit a few dollars per month, like as little as one, to the production of the podcast and get exclusive rewards in return. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or www.ssrpodcast.com and click support if you'd like to get in on monthly newsletters, book clubs, bonus episodes, free shipping on merch, on-demand book recommendations, and more. Thank you so much to all of the Patreon sponsors listening to episode 75. You are so cool. Libro FM is also pretty cool. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to cash in on that discount. Treat yourself this holiday season with a new audiobook, or two. You totally deserve it, and the indie bookselling community deserves our support, too. When you purchase a gift membership, you'll get a free audiobook copy of Madeline Miller's Cirque that you can pass along to your giftee or keep for yourself. If you decide to keep it, I promise I won't tell. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. 
You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Emily. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. We're talking about a pretty juicy little book today. Um, And listeners, (laughs) Emily and I met, what, two minutes ago? We just met. We're not even, we've never met in person. And we're we're diving into like quite a racy book. So I think we're going to get to know each other pretty well, get to know our opinions about things. We're going to bond on this episode. And I think it's just going to be really an adventure. It's also one o'clock on a Wednesday as we're recording this. And I do feel like I would benefit from maybe like a glass of wine or something. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to do that because I'm a professional. (laughs) Yeah. It's 10 a.m. where I am. So I am going to have my tea and spill it, we'll say. (laughs) Well, at least you would be in sort of like appropriate mimosa territory. One That's o'clock true. is tricky because I've already had like half a work day and I'm going to go finish another half when we get off the recording. But it's just like another normal day in my life. We're going to talk about the Judy Bloom sex book and then I'm going to go back to business. Yes, the absolutely infamous Judy Bloom sex book, which... <laughs> I remember knowing about as a kid and having been like tantalizing on library shelves. And then I never read it until I was an adult. (laughs) And here we are. I never read it either. I actually don't know that I was even aware of it when I was a kid. And then I heard about it a bit when I was working in publishing. I think it was sort of like this, you know, like inside joke that Mm -hmm. everybody seemed to have. And I was like, huh, what? Wait Um, a second. (laughs) And then I looked it up. Right. And I was like, oh yeah, nobody gave me this book. Um, And then Mm -hmm. I had put it on the list for SSR pretty early on, like knowing that it was something that I'd want to talk about because I'm sure, you know, I knew even at that time that there was going to be a lot of content to cover in a book like this. And we've done a lot of other Judy Bloom books, but this one is obviously totally different. Um, you mentioned that you read a lot of other Judy Bloom when you were growing up. So I'd love before we get started, if you could share some more about your experience with those and like whether you were a big Judy Bloom fan. Totally. I mean, I read all the standards, you know, Are You There, God and Blubber and a couple others, but those were definitely more for kids than they were for young adults. And so I think I skipped over sort of that MG, like young adult phase mostly. So I got a lot of like kids, kids books, but I never got the ones that were like a little bit racier. Yeah. And I guess Judy Bloom, when you think about it really is known for being racy, but I think that like at the points in my life, when I read those other books, I at least felt like I'd been introduced to a lot of the subject matter that was in them. So like, I know that Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was, was controversial to a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. like by the time I got to it, I had already kind of learned about the puberty stuff and it was less scandalous to me. And I guess so much of that just depends on like your environment, right? Oh, definitely. I grew up in like liberal parts of Connecticut and I'm also, you know, I was born in the mid eighties. So I was reading these things in the mid to late nineties. And so things like, you know, the period talk and things like that, mostly for, are you there, God? I was like really confused by like the mechanism she was using in order to deal with it. You know, like she's got the belt and things like that. And that was not any part of my health class, like discussions. It was always just, you know, the technical technology was more advanced, not so much the conversation around like what your body is going to be doing when you turn 13 or 14. So it was a little bit different. And then I always knew that forever was like the one where they talk about sex. But again, being a teenager in the, the late 90s, you know, it's not that racy <laughs> and it's not that scandalous. I think that if I had come to forever at sort of like a somewhat normal succession in my reading life as 
a Mm -hmm. teen or tween, I would have been scandalized by parts of it, mostly just because of the language. Um, Yeah. Like, the language around, like, the actual act of having sex, just because there there were a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, I was a fairly sheltered teen, and I, like, wasn't really in relationships until, like, early college. And so I just would have been, like, confused by a lot of what Judy Bloom was writing about. Although I feel like, you know, my mom was, like, always very open with me. And, like, we had fairly open dialogue about, like, if you have questions about sex, you can come to me. So Mm -hmm. I think, like, the notion of there being a book about teens having sex in itself wouldn't have blown my mind. But maybe, like, the actual book would have. I tended to read things, and I wonder if you did too, I tended to read things, like, a couple of years before it maybe would have been quote-unquote appropriate. So I think I probably would have read this when I was in like eighth grade, maybe even younger, and Mm -hmm. I would have been like, whew, this is a lot of Wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. I also didn't date until I was in early college, so a lot of this stuff like was just off the table for me. Like I knew by the time I was, you know, a junior or senior in high school, so about the same age as Kath is in the book, that like this was just like not part of my life and it was just going to go to college and that's when it was going to be appropriate. So I probably would have read this and just been like, that's nice for them and put it on a shelf. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but I do think that Judy Bloom's choice of putting the characters in that last sort of patch of high school before going to college is really interesting Mm -hmm. because I do remember that being a time when all of these conversations were going on around like, okay, like we're about to go off to college. Like, are we going to do it before we go or not? So I think it was really smart to put them in that very specific time period because she could have made them juniors in high school or even like the first semester of senior year. But setting them in those final months adds this really like sort of arbitrary pressure. I think that so many kids actually feel. They go into in the book about how just like when seniors start their senior year, how just nothing matters because they know they're coming up to this transition. And that sort of tumultuousness like really just drives the plot home, especially when they get to the summer camp you know, section where they're just, there's this idea that this is the last hurrah of like childhood and what they know. And so it, you're either going to try to cling to it with both hands so you, you don't lose it, or you just like march in the direction towards the unknown. And I just really love how she said it in sort of that final semester and summer uh, of senior year of college, because that's how I felt too, though. I was threatened like extensively by my teachers saying, you know, like, if you just stop caring about your grades, your college can rescind, you know, your acceptance and thing like that, which doesn't seem to come into play in this book. But there was definitely, you know, I remember that sort of free feeling of like, nothing matters moment of senior year. Yeah, you don't get much of the academic side in this book. But I agree with you. Like, I really like the way that Judy Bloom characterizes those feelings. And I experienced some of that more so socially than academically. Like, mm-hmm. I could not resist the urge to continue to work really hard in school just because that's my personality and like I probably should have chilled a little bit um we have podcasts about books I think people could infer that who am I kidding really who am I kidding but socially I do remember those last couple of months being like if people invite me to something I'm gonna go like if it seems like Mm -hmm. I could make a new friend I'm gonna try to lean into that friendship like really just having this overwhelming feeling of like it doesn't really matter so like let's try like let's put yourself out there and um um, I had been pretty, I would say I was like pretty introverted and like pretty content in a pretty small like social group until then. And yeah. I by no means went like crazy my senior year, but I did have this gut instinct that that was a time for me to at least be a little bit more open-minded. Yeah. I feel like I went the exact opposite where I was just kind of like, I had this thing that I recognize in Kath too, where she was just like, well, I was friends with these people freshman year, but I'm not friends with them anymore. Just because as you grow up and move on, you lose friends. And I remember distinctly be like almost doing that thing where you're just like culling toxic people from your life. And I was just like, I don't have to hang out with this person anymore. It's fantastic. I don't have to continue our relationship with them. I'm going to Boston for school. They're going to Virginia. We don't have to talk anymore. The social pressure is lifted. And that's That was what my introverted idiocy did to me my senior year. I guess I did a little of that too. And I recognize that in Kath also, where like the author made a point to be like, these were Kath's first friends in high school and they're not friends anymore. And it was funny because Mm -hmm. those paragraphs weren't actually relevant to anything else in the book, but I think it did 
illustrate that like, oh, this happens and like your social group changes in high school and it doesn't necessarily have to be this this big dramatic thing. It can just be like you making a decision that like these aren't really my people anymore. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that. And then she was like, I have my one person and that's all I really need. And then her relationship to that one person even changes throughout the year and how she sort of, you can feel the distance grow between her and her main female friend throughout the entire year. And it was, I really liked that too. So let's talk about some like basics about this book. So it was published in 1975 by our queen, Judy Bloom. Um, mm-hmm. As we've been alluding to, it is just a bit controversial. Um, a lot of people talk about it as the Judy Bloom sex book. It's frequently been banned and challenged and um, censored oh, yeah. and all of that stuff. In the years between 1990 and 2000, it was number seven on the ALA's list of the 100 most frequently challenged books. Um, wow, and that's, that's kind bananas. of just like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you can go online and find long lists of all of the libraries and school districts that have banned this book. I found yeah. um, a school district not that far from where I grew up that explicitly banned the book. I you know, didn't find my school district list but I wouldn't be surprised if this book wasn't in my school library just because I came from a relatively conservative school district. And I also, you know, I've I never remember, looked it up, but I know it was in my public library. It was. Yeah. I can't imagine it being like, I, I don't know that it would have been banned from my community, but I can't, I can't picture any teachers or librarians offering it mm-hmm. to any students. Um, right. So that's kind of where I come from. And when the book opens, well, it has this amazing opening line that I just have to read because I think it sets up a bit of what we're getting into here. The first line of this book is, Sybil Davis has a genius IQ and has been laid by at least six different guys. <laughs> And I loved it. And my first thought was that meme that's like, get you a girl who can do both. Um, Yes, exactly. And I love that because I do think like all too often there's these stereotypes that we see in all kinds of pop culture, especially books where it's like you're either a smart girl or you're Mm -hmm. a girl that is sexually active. And unfortunately, it does happen more frequently with girls than it does with boys. Um, I do think that that's changing in 2019 and hopefully beyond. But I think traditionally, like you either see girl characters who are really into their studies and going to great colleges, or you see girl characters who are just like out having fun and dating. So I love that Sybil Davis, who doesn't end up being like a main character in the book, but is the supporting player throughout, leads Mm -hmm. off this book with this like notion that it's you can be more of a nuanced figure and you can enjoy having sex and like exploring your sexuality while also being successful in the classroom. Yeah. Sybil is the most dynamic character in the whole book. She has this amazing little mini arc that I was like, I would love to know what happened to Sybil after they all went off to college because what she goes through and how she reacts to it is so controlled. She has so much like invested in how she views herself and how she portrays herself to other people that I just, I just love that character so much. I would love a Sybil book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Sybil is Erica's cousin, and Erica is Mm -hmm. Catherine's best friend, and Catherine is our main character. She's our leading lady. She's 17 when we meet her. It's New Year's Eve in her senior year, so she's like at that tricky halfway point a couple months before heading off to college, and Mm -hmm. she and her friend Erica are at a New Year's Eve party. They're at a fondue party, which is like so 70s, and I love it. It's so 70s. It's so the ice storm and perfect. Yeah, and she and her love interest meet because she has like I think a piece of cheese on her face or something and he's like let me get that for you (laughs) it's so high school sexy like it's an excuse for me to touch your face I'd be like please no like I don't let anybody touch my face this is humiliating and I'd rather hide in the closet thank you very much (laughs) right I would actually rather just lick this cheese off my face uh than have you to explore this any further. Exactly. So Michael is the cheese guy, um, and he goes to a different high school. But at <laughs> first, you like you liked that joke, Emily. Thank you. That makes mm-hmm. me feel good. Cheese guy. Um, but at first, Catherine thinks that he's older because he gives off this like older man vibe. So she thinks he might yeah. be in college, but really he just goes to a neighboring high school. And I love that Judy Bloom. Um, sets some of her books in New Jersey in towns that I'm actually familiar with. Like they talk a lot Mm -hmm. about the town of Westfield. I know a bunch of people from college who grew up in Westfield. Mm -hmm. So I really like that Judy Bloom like sets her books in places that might actually be familiar to readers. That's really fun. And my first question as I was reading this book was like, do we actually think that Michael's dreamy? Because I had a hard time kind of wrapping my head and my arms around this character from the beginning. Like 
we don't know that much about him. And it just kind of seems like Kath's crush on him escalates super quickly, which I guess is sort of reflective of how high school crushes happen. But also, like, I just didn't know anything about him other than he was good looking and was a good skier. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of there there for Michael. There's just not much more than just Kath's idea of him, but I feel like that's just like the root of sexiness when you're in high school is that you don't know them and that you haven't known them since you were like in kindergarten and you're not familiar with them. Because I always remembered when my friends would date someone from quote, another school, that was just like the most dreamy aspect of a person because I only had one high school in my town. So most people that I had known my entire life, they weren't going somewhere else. And most of us didn't have cars because we were not really the wealthiest town in the area. And so it was just like this ultimate allure of just not knowing every single embarrassing thing that person ever did in middle school. You know what I mean? And just not knowing anything about them is just like this huge alluring pull for her. And I could see how him being just from another school is enough when you're in high school. That's true. I dated a boy who went to another school when I was in high school and it is kind of fun to like not know that much about Mm -hmm. the person off the bat and you can just sort of imagine like, oh, they're probably so popular at their school and like, let me imagine what their life is like at their school. And I also remember having this tendency when I was having a bad day at my school in the way that you do normally Mm -hmm. as like a 14 or 15 year old, I would be like, oh, I just wish I went to their school because it's probably so much better than this school. So I think that like this sort of place into that. Yeah, it feels more adult. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because you get to control what that other person knows about you and what parts of your life you introduce them to. Like, he only introduces her to his one friend who's a really good actor. And so that makes him seem, you know, more alluring and artistic. And like, he might have goofy jock friends who might be utterly unappealing. But since he only introduces Catherine to the one person that he knows she'll be like drawn to. It's this, it's a control mechanism almost of having him be at another school. That's a great point. And I guess it also offers Catherine an opportunity to have a blank slate with somebody mm-hmm. because we don't know for sure that she's been at the same school for 12 years, but I would assume that she has. And we don't yeah. know that much about her either. She seems to be a good student. She's a really good tennis player. Um, you get the sense that she's like a nice girl, well-liked, kind of smart, yeah. not a genius, just kind of like a good mm-hmm. kid. But yeah. she's probably at this point in her education, like trying to get some excitement going. And when you know that you're going to be going off to college and having an opportunity to have that blank slate with everyone you meet, it's tempting to start that a little sooner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But they're not super fleshed out characters. And I found a really great quote that I think sums it up in an article from the AV Club, which I will link in the show notes as always. It goes like this, while both Catherine and Michael are too generalized and bland to be memorable characters in their own right, their lack of distinctiveness makes them universal ciphers that young readers can project their own experiences onto even more than 35 years later. That makes sense because when you're where when you're learning how to write, someone always says to you, some professor always says, you know, the general is in the specific and you should be as specific as humanly possible. But I'm not sure if that works in YA or things geared towards teenagers who don't have their own specifics to draw on. Maybe Judy Bloom really did the smart thing by making Catherine and Michael just like completely bland almost. You know, he participates in one sport, she participates in another sport, and that's really just about the extent of their interests. Yeah, maybe the general is in the general sometimes. Yeah. And I don't know offhand at what point in sort of her like overall writing career this book was written. I mean, it was written in 1975, but I can't think for sure like what books came before it and what books came after it. But we also have to remember right. that Judy Bloom is not used to writing characters of this age. She went on to write adult books, um, which has, mm-hmm. you know, people love Summer Sisters and there's a number of other adult titles that she's put out there. But for the most part, Judy Bloom's experience at this point was in writing books about elementary and middle schoolers. So it is kind of interesting mm-hmm. as somebody who's read a lot of her titles to see how she portrays these older kids. Yeah, exactly. Because they do do some juvenile things, but I think it reminded me that 17-year-olds are still kids and they're not adults. And sometimes they do just get to behave irrationally and like children because they are. Yeah, they are. They are. And I was. Um, I certainly was when I was Kath's age. So their relationship does kind of 
escalate somewhat fast. I found myself like paging back a couple of times being like, oh, so they decided that they're hanging out now. Like all of a sudden they go from being at the New Year's party when there's definitely some flirting going on. I will say that Judy Mm -hmm. Bloom really knows how to write awkward flirting. Like she nails it. That's true. The dialogue is so good. Like the weird conversations they're having, the like random connections they're trying to make with each other. So true to life and so true to what it's like to like figure out how you're supposed to flirt with people when you're 17. I love that. Um, But they go from this New Year's party to like starting to see each other a little bit more frequently. Did you find that you were getting lost in that a little bit or did I miss something? No, I definitely did. But I I think also it wasn't unusual, I think, for my understanding of teenage relationships for people to say like they went out on one date and then all of a sudden they were dating someone and they were boyfriend and girlfriend. I think that was more appropriate than the more adults you know, concept of relationships that I see my friends having now, where you can go on endless dates for, with someone for like six months and all of a sudden you're, you're still not boyfriend and girlfriend. I think teenagers have more of a tendency to just sort of jump into titles really quickly. So it moved awkwardly and, you know, it almost stuttered for me that I didn't understand how many dates they had gone on before they were like exclusive, but I felt that was more true to life than perhaps the sort of endless stringing along that people go through now that we're in our like late 20s and 30s. It's a conversation that we've been having more frequently on the podcast lately, actually, um, because as a writer, I think I tend to like read some of these books and be like, well, the relationships aren't very well developed. But then I step back mm-hmm. and as I mentioned before, like I think sometimes when these relationships don't necessarily seem to make a lot of sense to us as adult readers, it's because this YA author is trying to reflect the feelings of being 14, 15, 15, 16, 17 years old. And like, sometimes there is no rhyme or reason. And there's not all of these conversations that are leading you into something more official. And you might not actually be able to connect the dots on like when one thing led to the other led to the other, and then you became boyfriend and girlfriend. So I think like, it's always a reminder to me of the fact that while I do spend a lot of time revisiting these books for the podcast, they're not obviously written for me at my current age. And so just trying to like step back and figure out how much of it is intentional really on the author's part, because they realize that often this is how it feels to be falling in love when you're in high school. Yeah. And it's not logical and you can't plot the plot points. It just happens because it happens. And most of the time that does drive me up a wall, but you know, in adult books now, but I think it makes a lot more sense when they are kids. I also wonder too, if it has anything to do with the fact that this book was written in the seventies and their main form of communication, especially as teens that are dating from different high schools is to call each other on landlines. So it's like, you don't really have the luxury of going back and forth constantly because you're texting or talking on social media. It's like, we either have to be in or out and it would be a lot less complicated Mm -hmm. for me to like explain it to my parents and to my friends if we just agree that as long as we're going on dates, we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Yes, that's a really good point. Because again, I am an old and I don't have, you know, that constant sort of peek into someone else's life that social media offers you. So, you know, calling each other on a phone where your parents can listen in and they know who's calling you and things like that, that's so much more real to my understanding of dating your teenager than I think kids nowadays would even remotely be able to comprehend. What was your first impression of Kath's parents? Because we do get a lot of time with her family. We don't get really any time with Michael's family, but her parents in particular and her little sister figure pretty heavily into the story. What did you think of them, especially early on in the book? See, I really, really loved them because I spent a lot of time with my family as well growing up. Like I didn't have like a hugely active social life and I never really tried to hide anything from my family. Also because I wasn't really dating anybody. So there wasn't anything like surreptitious to try to get away with. So it made a lot of sense for me that she would be in constant communication with her parents and her little sister, just sort of like, well, I don't have any secrets to hide from them. I might as well just be forthcoming. But her parents' relationship to her, I found really interesting. And I loved her grandma so much. Her 
extended family of just like her older parents and her grandparents are just such lovely, understanding people that I feel bad for anybody who reads this who doesn't have that parent in their life. Does that make sense? Totally. And it's cool because she recognizes it. I didn't pull out the excerpt, but I remember that there's a whole paragraph where she talks about how she like mm-hmm. knows that not all kids are lucky to grow up not only with two parents in their house, but also with two parents who are so openly in love with each other. Like she knows that it's yeah. unusual. And I would assume that unusual. in the 70s, like maybe this is when more people were starting to get divorced. And so maybe Judy Bloom wanted to make a statement about like, you know, this is not to be taken for granted. Not all kids are going to grow yeah. up with this sort of consistency with yeah. their parents in their house all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I like that Kath realizes that she's lucky to have them as an example and that they are so open. They're kind of like verging on hippie a little bit. Like, yeah, they are, which I liked. And I think with it, all the macrame, and oh my rug gosh. they were like constantly <laughs> making so hook 70s. rugs, which I loved. Like yeah. she was nervous that when Michael came over, he would be like weirded out by all of the hooked rugs in the house. And I was like, but how many mm-hmm. hooked rugs are in your house that you're worried about? Yeah. <laughs> how many hooked rugs is too many hooked rugs? Because if you're concerned about it, it's too many hooked drugs. Right. You might want to downsize. Yeah. And it's cool because her sister is super artistic. So she actually like paints the patterns for the hook drugs. And then as a family, Mm -hmm. they actually like do the like yarn work, I guess, to make the hook drugs. So I liked those details. And I think it sets us up to have this like somewhat open dialogue among the family members about things like sex and relationships. And as you mentioned, she has this super cool grandmother. Both of her grandparents are awesome, but her grandmother in particular is really active with Planned Parenthood in New York City. And so Mm -hmm. that really ends up being a lifeline for Kath when she and Michael, spoiler alert, do end up having sex. And she like is able to lean on her grandmother a little bit because she can offer her some resources to figure out what she's supposed to do. And that was a really smart move on Judy Bloom's part, I think, because it offered it created this like structure, this almost like safe framework in which Kath could like Mm -hmm. get this information, but she didn't have to leave her own family to do it. And so I think it's like a nice sort of like toe in the water um, for teens who like yeah. might not be sure where to start. Yeah, you don't have to go and have like an awkward conversation with your high school nurse or something like that. You know, there's this wonderful, warm, like matriarchal figure in her life that's going to give her not like a talking to that you shouldn't do this because nice girls don't. She's just kind of like, this is part of life and you should enjoy it and you should enjoy it safely. And I thought it was really interesting because her parents are young. They're younger than I thought they were. They kind of give... I don't exactly remember, but I got, or rather, yeah. I will say that I got the impression that her parents were younger. Well, her mom was turning my 40. Parents were. So she, right. they must have been Thank like you. in their very early 20s when Kath was born. Right. One thing that I learned was that teen pregnancy, this is like a weird random fact, like skyrocketed in the late 1950s when people were expected to be sort of monogamous and in relationships. And one thing that brought that about was that when you were expected to date multiple people at the same time and not quote, like go steady, you weren't as likely to have sex with every single person that you were dating. And so it wasn't until societal pressure told people in the 1950s to sort of go steady after the war that teen pregnancy skyrocketed. And I was thinking about that in terms of the age of her parents and how they kept urging her to not go steady with Michael and to date more people. And I wondered how much of that era of when they grew up was sort of pushing her into safe sex of just not having sex and dating multiple people versus her grandmother saying, well, I know this is inevitable for kids your age, so at least do it responsibly. That's really Sorry, that was a roundabout way. No, that was really interesting historical context. And it's helpful because that's actually an argument that I've heard in real life, not so much now, obviously, because I'm like a grown mm-hmm. woman. But um, in high school and college, like I remember hearing people tell me that their parents were like discouraging them from from dating one person and we're like, you should date, like you should meet more people and just like casually yeah. date. And I think that's a real thing. I think it's continued even past the seventies, but I, in reading about it in this book was like, this is so confusing to me. Like it feels like such mm-hmm. a mixed message and maybe it's just because of the fact that like the way we look at sex and sexuality and like the role of sex and relationships has changed 
now. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, I do think that there is a bit more of a tendency for people to have sex with people that aren't necessarily like, you know, their partners. And, um, I think that like now, or even in the nineties or early aughts, when I was growing up, it's like the implication is if you're dating multiple people, you might also be sleeping with multiple people. That's a really good point. And I think I also grew up during the time where like STIs and AIDS and HIV was like constantly in the conversation and that had been linked, you know, erroneously to promiscuity and your likelihood of getting an STI increased the more people that you had sex with. So I remember being given the the lecture of like only date one person because then you, again, like you were saying, you might be sleeping with multiple people, you know, as your risk of pregnancy goes down. So that whole freak out of like, you might get, you know, exposed to more, you know, STIs because you might be sleeping with more people. So the lecture was only date one person. You should be in a relationship. You should be monogamous. And it's just like all these horrifically conflating and confusing lectures around sexuality is like, thanks everybody. Yeah. It's <laughs> Nobody's almost, on the same page ever. Yeah. It's almost like Kath's dad and like other dads or other parents. I mean, I don't want to say only dads mm-hmm. are saying this. I do think it tends to be sort of a patriarchal message, but um, it's almost like Kath's dad just didn't want to say, like, don't have sex with multiple people, so instead he just said, like, you should be dating more than, I don't know, it's this weird code, whereas Mm -hmm. now I feel like to give somebody permission to date around in some ways feels a little bit like giving them permission to sleep around, too, which is like, you know, everybody should feel empowered to do what they want to do, and I think our thoughts about that are just so different now, so I read this, you know, in 2019 with some, like, concern about mixed messages, but that context you provided is really helpful. Yeah, because no point ever, well, maybe her grandmother gives it, but very rarely does the message of Kath, do what you're comfortable with. It doesn't really come into the conversation really all that often. Her best friend Erica is sort of talking to her about how she should, you know, have sex before she goes off to college. Her boyfriend is like, the second you say go, we're going to go. Her parents are saying, you know, date multiple people because that's what we would be more comfortable with. And really only her grandmother is saying, you do what you want and whatever resources you need, I can help provide provide for you. Her grandmother is the only person doing that throughout the entire book. Yeah, I pulled out one line from her mom. I think they're sitting in the car, and it might even have been after Kath and Michael have had sex, but her mom says, it's up to you Mm -hmm. to decide what's right and what's wrong. I'm not going to tell you to go ahead, but I'm not going to forbid it either. It's too late for any of that. I expect you to handle it with a sense of responsibility, though, either way. And this is after Kath has asked her directly, like, were you a virgin when you got married? And her mom was sort of, like, cagey about it, but in the end, we learned that she was not a virgin when she got married, but they waited to have sex until after they got engaged. And when Kath right. asks if her dad was a virgin, her mom is like, there were double standards then. Boys were supposed to get plenty of experience before marriage, which like, gross. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just in terms of the double standard. And sadly, I think that that double standard still exists and definitely existed Absolutely. in the 70s when the book was written. But again, like all interesting dynamics about like how her parents expect her to behave. And like, you know, we have her cool grandmother who has a different set of expectations. I think it's kind of cool to think about the fact that maybe there is a bit of like a generational thing happening where like you picture Kath's mom's mom being super open about sex and like mm-hmm. promoting safe sex and wanting to have conversations about it. And her mom is like a little bit more reserved and things always tend to skip yeah. a generation that way, I think. I agree. Especially her mother growing up with a mother like that might have given her just some more of like, if mom's always talking about it, I don't want her to ask me questions. So I'm just going to avoid the situation as much as possible and just like not have a boyfriend and not have it be a possibility because I really don't want to talk to my mom about that. You know? Exactly. That's what I was thinking too. But she's getting so many different messages about sex. I want to go back to the conversation you mentioned that she has with Erica. Um, And it's after... Mm -hmm. Kath and Michael have been seeing each other for a while and Michael's like starting to pressure her to have sex um, which is like pretty triggering for her because her last boyfriend Tommy like that's all that he was interested in um, and that's why they broke up and so Kath's like considering what she wants to do because it does seem like she's interested in it and she really likes Michael but she like is just kind of trying to figure out how she feels about all of it and Erica is sort of seeing Michael's friend Artie but there's some weirdness there because Mm -hmm. she's not entirely sure that he's interested 
interested in women and he doesn't seem entirely sure either but Erica is like desperate to lose her virginity and she says I've been thinking that it might not be a bad idea to get laid before college and Catherine says but what about love and Erica says you don't need love to have sex Catherine says but it means more that way and Erica says they say the first time's never any good anyway Catherine says which is why you should at least love him and Erica says maybe but I'd really like to get it over with and it's amazing (laughs) because I remember like being a part of those same conversations when I was their age oh yeah just like I think the like the universal timeless conversation that teens can have with each other where it's like these are just two fundamentally different approaches to physical intimacy Mm -hmm. and with this like looming sort of deadline in some ways where you're ending this chapter of your life and moving on to college it feels like you have to take some sort of a stand and I like the way that Judy Bloom portrayed that right I think there's just this overwhelming threat to teenagers that college is the start of adulthood and you should be as prepared for it as humanly possible and so you get the reaction that Erica does where she's like not having had sex is a mark of being a kid and a mark of being an adult is having had sex and being at college so let's just get it done and Kath is like wait a second slow down there might just be a a growing up period which I think more people are starting to understand and at least the impressions that I get from teenagers from the internet is that they understand that it's a process and thank goodness that is starting to sort of come into an understanding of of sex and relationships for the generation behind me. But I feel like that urgency that Erica has is so incredibly real to life, but you never, or you rarely see teenage girls being the ones to articulate it, where they're just like, I want to just rip off the bandaid and get it done. And I just really respect that Judy Bloom put that perspective into the book. Yeah. Cause I think there is this temptation to think of it as so binary. Like there's high school and there's college mm-hmm. and like, you know, there's not really any sort of transition period and you have to like decide what you're going to do in high school and then that's over and then you start again in college and like you don't get to sort of blend those experiences at all which yeah I think it's like it makes sense to feel that way because you don't know anything different when you're a senior in high school but I'm glad that Judy Bloom included that mindset because I think it's pretty common. What did you think about the way that Michael was talking to Kath about sex? I found an interesting quote in an article from The Guardian, which again, I'll link in the show notes, but the writer said, the sex itself is tender and real. In particular, Michael's premature ejaculation, which I'm not discussing right now, Mm -hmm. um, rings true, as does the subtle pressure he applies on Catherine to have intercourse. In a more recent novel, I feel the YA romantic lead would never pressure the female main character to have sex unless he was a villain. In Forever, it simply feels awesome authentic. Ooh. Good, right? Interesting. Ooh. Yeah, it does, but I wasn't I don't know if I would consider it villainous, but the way that Michael does pressure her, it's not subtle. He really does kind of pressure her with an ounce of cruelty that I thought was realistic, but not the mark of a good guy. The fact that he, you know, he gets actively disappointed and calls her a tease at a certain point. And I thought to myself, this is a guy you should break up with, not a guy that you should continue seeing and wanting to, you know, do anything to make happy. When the book ends the way it does, I saw the breadcrumbs of how that would be Michael's reaction throughout their relationship, not that it was his pressure against her was natural and average. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that I don't necessarily see him as a villain either. I think that Mm -hmm. unfortunately, like there is likely to always be some level of discrepancy in any relationship, teen or otherwise, in terms of like when each person is ready to move forward physically. Like it's yeah. unlikely that people are going to be totally always be on the same page. All the time. Exactly. Yeah. And that is scarier than ever when you're a teen and you're experiencing firsts mm-hmm. because it feels like you're almost making these like declarations about what you are and aren't ready for and like you don't want somebody to get bored with you or to leave you or to judge you and it's just like so complicated and scary when you're a teen um so I think mm-hmm. that like the sort of discrepancy in how fast you want to move forward is not necessarily problematic it but it is tricky in teen relationships when you're making these really big decisions and when you haven't had the opportunity to like sort of gather your thoughts about how you're going to be safe and how you're going to communicate about stuff. I think what's interesting about this comment that 
the writer of the Guardian article makes is that like I think that there's this wonderful thing happening in YA now and in, in all pop culture now, not just mm-hmm. intended for teens, where we really are trying to give agency back to women right. in their sex lives and otherwise. And so I think that we're almost getting to the point now where like a character like this wouldn't even be allowed to appear in a book because it's like just by giving them a platform to like appear in a book, you're making it seem like you're condoning that kind of a pressure and like that agency being taken away from a woman um, right. or from a teen no, girl. Agree. And I'm so glad that we are moving in that direction, of course, and like it's something that I feel really passionately about. But I also think that depictions of guys like Michael, who are his age, older, mm-hmm. younger, whatever, it's authentic and it's the experience of a lot of people. It is. And I think that, you know, there's a way in modern YA and in all kinds of other content to like depict guys like this or girls like this because it's not always the man Mm -hmm. in a relationship who's quote-unquote pressuring somebody the pressuring right I think you can like show that this dynamic can exist in all kinds of sexual relationships whether it's a girl and a boy two two men two women like what I think you can Mm -hmm. show that these dynamics happen in all kinds of relationships while also being like the experienced versus the inexperienced right and like let's show how this dynamic can play out and let's also show how you deal with it. And I think that Kath does like a pretty good job of navigating that experience. Given the tools that she has and her past experience with her previous boyfriend, Tommy, who she openly says she kicked to the curb because he was trying to have sex with her and did not understand why she did not want to have sex at that moment with him. So you can tell that she has the power to to stop it. And so she wouldn't stay with Michael and his, I'll say for a lack of a better term, like pestering her to have sex if she wasn't comfortable with it. You know she has the power to to stop it. So I'm glad that Judy Bloom gave us that context of that she has broken up with guys for this before. She doesn't feel helpless. She doesn't feel like a victim. And she does openly almost yell at Michael at times of just saying like, don't pressure me. Don't say negative things about me. Like it's going to happen when I'm ready and that, and not a second before. And so she does have these moments where she stands up and, you know, fully admits that she intends on sleeping with him. She intends on having sex with him, but just not right now and not before she's ready. So she does have this power that a lot of I imagine teen girls previously in books didn't have. And I I do think that when they ultimately did sleep together, it was when she was ready. Like she was able to stick Mm -hmm. to her guns on that. It's not like she was saying that. And then in the end, she sort of felt like she had to have sex with him before she felt comfortable. Like I think that she was able to wait until she was ready. And I think that's really empowering for readers. And I thought that the way that all of that was handled was actually really great and accurate in like the awkwardness of their first encounters. Like Mm -hmm. even the awkwardness of, you know, them going on the ski trip where you can tell they both were all hyped up to do it for the first time and like she brought her like prettiest white nightgown which in 2019 is really funny to think about that she brought this like long like sleeve like long long sleeved right like I picture Wendy from Peter Pan um and she's like I can't Absolutely. wait for Michael to see me in this like haha I know and it's got little heart-shaped buttons which is like so juvenile and it just breaks my heart to read those little details because yeah, like, it's sexy. so childish <laughs> yeah hot but but she gets her period. And so like even the awkwardness mm-hmm. of having to explain that to a partner for yeah, the first to a time. Teenage boy. Like I remember doing that for the first time. Like having yep. to say to somebody, like, mm, I don't know if I first Not of all, tonight. Do, do I tell you this? Like, how much do you want to know? Yeah. Like that's such a exactly. weird Exactly. It's gonna be three to five days. Sorry, <laughs> teenage boy. Right. Like, am I supposed to tell you this? Like, do I owe you this information? Like, do you just need to find yeah. out? Like it's these are things that are so weird and uncomfortable. And I love that you know like throws them all into one book. So Yeah, she really didn't have to. No, she there were things that I was like, no, you you really didn't have to include this. But no, I like that even before they were having sex, like the sex talks felt like appropriately awkward and realistic. And then like, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to figure out how it all works. And, you know, they're they're definitely awkward with each other. And I liked that because I think that 
sometimes in not necessarily YA books, but like generally in maybe more in teen movies and like TV shows, that first time is portrayed as this like really like exciting, sexy, kind of easy thing. Um, And by all accounts, I'm not even just speaking for myself here. It's not, and it's awkward and it requires conversation. And like, even after that, like it takes some time. It does. It's going to be incredibly weird for a long period of time. And I do like the fact that each subsequent time that they do have sex, something weird happens where they're just like, that was embarrassing or it wasn't how I expected it to go. And it never becomes rote. It never becomes something boring. It always becomes like, oh my God, we get to have sex. This is fantastic. It's always a little bit awkward and a little bit uncomfortable. And it's just so fantastic. Fantastic that she never paints it as something glamorous or, you know, they always say now that like internet pornography has ruined the way kids think of, or most people think how you would have sex. And they don't have any of those benchmarks aside from just maybe like romance novels. Mm -hmm. And it never hits any sort of ideal situation for them. It's always just weird. And it makes me so happy. Yeah. I think there actually are some references to Kath being like in books, like this is what they say Mm -hmm. it's like. So you do wonder if she's reading romance books. I pulled out one paragraph that I think must've come from like the day after she lost her virginity, but she says, on the way home, I thought, I am no longer a virgin. I'll never have to go through the first time business again. And I'm glad. I'm so glad it's over. Still, I can't help feeling let down. Everybody makes such a big thing out of actually doing it, but Michael is probably right. This takes practice. I can't imagine what the first time would be like with someone you didn't love. And I just, it's so relatable because I do remember being like, wow, like part of my thing now like yeah one of the new things about my identity is that I'm not a virgin and like it's like such a weird uh-huh. thing that you feel like that even is something that you need to be aware of but I love yeah. like how like upfront Judy Bloom is with that here like she's like I'm owning mm-hmm. it like I'm realizing I am not a virgin anymore exactly it's it, it's something that society tells you is going to change you and it does just because they told you it's going to because it does have societal meaning. Not It doesn't actually do anything about you. you know. It doesn't change a single goddamn thing about you. But it's okay to think that it does as long as you're comfortable with the way it happened. Does that make sense? Totally. And I think that what I love so much about this book that like even goes a level beyond being like, as long as you're okay with how it happened, um, mm-hmm. is that this book kind of puts a premium on like female sexuality and like female satisfaction and the fact that Kath is like trying to figure out how to make sex a good experience for her like at first she's awkward about it and like kind of asking a lot of questions because Michael is not a virgin Mm -hmm. which we haven't noted before but within a few paragraphs like she's actively like trying to have good sex herself and that's yeah that's great and I can't imagine it's something that was being talked about especially yeah. the teens in the 70s. Yeah, and she's excited and thrilled that she's having sex. She doesn't have, really have a moment of regret where she's like, oh, I should have waited longer or not with this person. She's just kind of like, I changed and it's for the better. Exactly. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's so cringeworthy, but I would be mm-hmm. remiss. And I think you know what I'm probably going to say. Yeah. I would be remiss if I did not mention the name Ralph. Yeah. Um, And Ralph sort of hilariously is listed on the Wikipedia page for this book under minor (laughs) characters. And he's defined as Michael's better half. And somebody really had a great time making that (laughs) tweak on Wikipedia. So shout out to you wherever you are. I don't feel comfortable saying this anyway. So I'm just going to say what it is. Ralph is what Michael calls his penis. Um, He named it. It's, it's oh, excuse gross. me. Rather, he—I believe he mentions that Ralph introduced himself to him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, no judgment it's to anybody so out there who names parts of their bodies to each their mm-hmm. own. But the mm-hmm. way in which Michael talks about Ralph, I think, is like sort of the number one way that he creeps me out because, like, sort of yeah. through Ralph is how he's exercising some power over Catherine. Like, it's not mm-hmm. really Michael saying these things, but it's like Ralph demanding these things. Um, yeah. And I kind of was thinking, like, maybe Judy Bloom decided to insert this name 
just so that it would be a little bit like less awkward for her to do the writing about sex. And I think that that makes yeah. sense as like a method or as right. a technique. She doesn't have to use the word penis. Right. She can say Ralph. And I'm happy about that. Like I didn't need to read penis throughout the whole book, but I also didn't need to yeah. constantly get references to Ralph, especially because like Ralph is like kind of an asshole. Yeah. So I, 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 I just had to It's also that. a really good way for Michael to sort of separate his own pressures on Kath from, it removes his agency of saying like, oh, it's Ralph that wants these things. No, you idiot 17 year old boy. It's you who wants these things. And to sort of make it out of his control Mm -hmm. really grossed me out. Like Michael never made a choice. It was never his choice to pressure Kath. Catherine for sex. It was always Ralph, this like mysterious other that was like really gross as an adult. That's how I felt too. And I didn't have like super strong feelings about Michael generally. I mean, he had some moments of dishonesty in the book that I didn't love. Yeah. And he was short tempered about things like Catherine being jealous of his ex-girlfriends and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like for the most part, I was like, I could take him or leave him. But Ralph and like the way that he like talked about Ralph as if he was somehow disconnected from him, I thought was like probably one of my like least favorite parts of Michael made a lot more sense to me once she met his family at the graduation party because his mother kept introducing Catherine to family members as Michael's little friend and his father was like dismissive of her and so was his uncle and that for me made me understand Michael a little bit better and that he was probably he didn't come from as loving of a home environment as Catherine did and things like that so his sort of expectations or his concept of expectations expectations were different than I thought Catherine's would be where, you know, sex for her and their relationship meant, you know, creating a loving environment. And his was slightly more, you do it as a goal to achieve. Yeah. I think he's like repressed emotionally in some ways maybe. And Mm -hmm. like, just doesn't have that sort of conversational openness in his home. And so like, he's contending with that as he's starting these relationships on his own. So I didn't love that, but we can move on from Ralph now because I feel like we've already talked about him enough and he doesn't deserve any more of our time. Another really empowering moment for Kath is of course when she goes to Planned Parenthood in New York City. Mm -hmm. She like makes this whole plan because her grandmother has given her some resources once she gets this feeling that maybe Catherine has become sexually active and she makes the appointment to go to Planned Parenthood one day when she's having lunch with her grandparents in the city. She makes the appointment by herself and she like just super independently makes this decision to go. It's not like Michael is pressuring her to be like, you know, you really need to get on the pill. She decides to go. I mean, he seemed pretty comfortable with like using condoms and that seemed fine. Like it wasn't an issue, but she went and she was like aware of the method that she wanted to use. And she seemed to have like educated Mm -hmm. herself. Like her family had given her these pamphlets and she was a little weirded out by it, but she read them. And I think that's more than a lot of kids would do. It's probably more than I would have done. Like I would have been Oh, absolutely. I would have been humiliated Um, and thrown them out immediately. Yeah. But she's read them and she's able to like walk into this clinic and be like, this is what I want. Um, I'd rather be on the pill than use these other methods Mm -hmm. and so if you could figure that out for me that would be great and so I love that I think that's sort of like objectively a great scene and I'm sure very impactful for kids in this era also. Yeah I love the fact that she went to Planned Parenthood specifically and it wasn't just her mother made an appointment for her at her doctor's office or something along those lines she sought out Planned Parenthood and my heart just grew three sizes. I was like, thank you, Judy Bloom, for being so specific about a place where someone who's reading this can have resources and find support. I just thought that was so brilliant and so fantastic. And my version that I got from my library actually has a note in the beginning Mm -hmm. from Judy Bloom that basically says times have changed from the 1970s when you were having sex and the biggest thing you were worried about was pregnancy. But now, you know, you have to worry about it. STIs and things like that. So you can always call Planned Parenthood and she gives a 1-800 number, which is adorable, and a URL that kids can visit. And I was like, ah, Judy Bloom, you're a hero. Judy Bloom, we love you at SSR. We really do love you. And I think the other interesting thing about that scene is that it's like really clinical. Um, I found some reviews Mm -hmm. and like think pieces about this part of the book where it's like, it's kind of bordering on nonfiction, like maybe a little bit too clinical. But I think that if I was a teen... Well, I remember being a teen and I remember thinking like, 
I don't know what it's going to be like to go to the gynecologist for the first time. I don't right. know what it's what it would be like to go have a conversation about birth control. Like, what questions are they going to mm-hmm. ask me? Like, what are the expectations going to be? So I think that if I had read this at the right time in my life, maybe that would have at least given me a sense of like what I needed to be prepared for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's just another place where Catherine doesn't experience judgment at all that really helps solidify like her understanding of what she was doing and how it was going to affect her. It just made me really happy that if it's another person that doesn't offer judgment, then she's not going to judge herself. And it was fantastic. Yeah. And my favorite thing in terms of Catherine not judging herself was the ending. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes on, but to sum it up, the two sort of like have this whole plan for themselves. They're like, they think they're going to live happily ever after. They come up with this whole plan so that even though they're going to two different colleges, they'll be able to spend all this time together. Kath's parents are like really trying to help her cool her jets. And so they push her to go work as a tennis counselor at her sister's camp. And mm-hmm. Michael is going to North Carolina to work in like a lumber yard. And he lies to Kath about yeah. it, which I don't love. But they do end up spending the summer before college apart. And Catherine finds herself attracted to this guy named Thea who's a fellow tennis counselor and she kisses him and Michael like ends up coming up to camp to surprise her because she's lost her grandfather and he like wants to be there to support her and that scene was just like oh so awkward because she like walks into the camp office holding Theo's hand um and Michael's there like I'm sure looking so eager surprised her and like I'm so I mean the hero like I'm here to save you I want to be your comfort um and she has to have this really hard conversation with him about the fact that maybe this whole concept of forever, which they they talk about constantly. I mean, we haven't mentioned this, but Mm -hmm. like at every turn, the two of them are using the word forever to describe what their relationship and their love is going to look like. He's given her this necklace with the word forever on it. Um, And Mm -hmm. of course, after they have this really tough conversation at the end of the book, there's this like intensity about who's going to take the necklace. Like she takes the forever necklace off and it's like this obvious symbol of what's happened. She's like, no, you, you take this necklace back, but he doesn't want it, which I think, you know, is a breakup scene that a lot of people have experienced in some degree. Absolutely. But I really liked one of the paragraphs in the last chapter because, you know, they have this really icky breakup. He is like, well, you don't know this, but like I basically like fucked my way around North Carolina, but like, <sighs> which was so nasty. And and then she was like, really? And he said something to the effect of like, well, you'll never know. And I was like, you probably did. Yeah. You're the worst. But he probably. He probably, I mean, like, I, I think we can call him a fuck boy in that case, right? Like, is he a fuck boy of oh. literature? Absolutely. He, you know, he was just a normal teenage boy, I think, until that breakup scene where he specifically tries to hurt her in a way that, you know, he knows will get to her core because she hasn't done anything with Theo. Like she kissed him, but he mostly just like kissed her forehead. And she admits to him, she admits to Michael rather that she's unsure about the relationship simply because she's attracted to Theo. They haven't really done anything and she but she just kind of says I find myself fantasizing about Theo and that's really about it and Michael immediately turns around and says well I've acted on it essentially so I hurt you more don't you know and then speeds off into the night in some shitty rental car cool move Michael um yeah Yeah, I was like I was like sort of ambivalent about him and then I was like "Eh, no you're the worst um but she does kind of find some peace with it and they like run into each other before they leave for college and she says, I wanted to tell him that I will never be sorry for loving him, that in a way I still do, that maybe I always will. I'll never regret one single thing we did together because what we had was very special. Maybe if we were 10 years Mm -hmm. older, it would have worked out differently. Maybe. I think it's just that I'm not ready for forever. I was like, oh, Judy Bloom, you really know how to bring it home. Um, Because that's really like the most important message. Like, I think the most important message is like, there's nothing inherently wrong with like, exploring your sexuality before you think you're actually with your forever Mm -hmm. person if you think that's your forever person then great like I think that Judy Bloom doesn't condescend to readers here like it's not like oh you think you're gonna be together forever okay like she's respectful to teen relationships but in the end it's like no like you might not actually be with this person forever and you can still feel 
safe in the decisions that you made. You can still feel like you didn't make any mistakes and like all yeah, of those you things have can to be have true. Regret. Yeah. So I love yeah, that. And that fantastic. I think is the overriding message, um, which I very much appreciated. I agree. I agree. Especially because that is just about the absolute last page of the book where she had previously mentioned a couple that they had gone to high school with that was planning on forever. And there was no deviation for them that, you know, they started dating freshman year and then they were planning on what houses they were going to buy and raise their kids in, you know, and it's just, it's charming that they know this couple, but the last page of the book really is just her saying that wasn't me and that's okay. And I don't regret even the things that Michael had said to me or made me feel that's all just a part of growing up. And it's just really, really lovely. Yeah. I think her mindset around it is sort of the best case scenario for a lot of people where it's Mm -hmm. like, if you know, some people end up with the person that they had sex with first, but a lot of people don't. And I think that the mindset that Kath ends up with is sort of like where you hope that you get to be in that case. She like finds her way to a healthy headspace. So if if you'd read this book when you were younger, I would ask you at this point if reading it again had ruined it for you or made you love it all the more. Mm -hmm. And neither of us read it when we were growing up. So I'm wondering if like taking all of this into account, you feel like forever contributes to like a healthy discourse about sex or not? Like, did it meet your expectations about that sort of controversial Judy Boom sex book? What do you think on the whole? Well, I was actually expecting it to be a lot racier than it ends up being. And I think that the pressure and of the allure around it of just being the Judy Bloom sex book keeps a lot of people from reading it. And I would say that I was probably embarrassed to ever check it out from the library or try to give it a read when I was younger because I knew of it and I didn't want to see have people see me reading it because I didn't want to be the one person reading the Judy Bloom sex book. And I feel like it shouldn't have that reputation. It shouldn't have that sort of scandalous aspect to it. And I wish it didn't. I wish that wasn't perpetuated of just, this is a really lovely, almost mundane teen romance novel. And I wish it didn't have that sort of cloud hanging over it. And in fact, it's actually incredibly healthy. And I it boggles my mind, honestly, now having read it as an adult, granted a very sex positive adult, why anyone would want to persuade kids from reading it. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward and like the Mm -hmm. sweetness of first love, although it turns sour, like it's all very authentic and true to life. It's very charming. I agree. I'm glad we read it. Thank you so much for choosing this one. Me too. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Of course. What else have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA or middle grade. It can be anything that you've really been enjoying. Oh, golly. I am currently reading Northanger Abbey for the first time, and it's actually my first Jane Austen novel. And so I find it a little bit odd and intriguing that this is my first one I've ever read, but I can highly recommend it. And uh, I have to admit that for things that are not for my show, I'm completely obsessed with mystery novels. So there's one mystery series on Kindle that I just love, and it's delightful, and it's the Lady Hardcastle Mysteries. If you want something light and fluffy that doesn't deal with sex or emotional uh, relationships, give it a shot. It's really fun. I've heard that from more than one person, so you're not alone. Okay, good. I include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode along with a link to forever and of course a link to emily's podcast fuck boys of literature emily thank you so much for joining me this was such a fascinating conversation i think we had so much more we could have talked about but i just encourage people to read this book and let us know what you think mm-hmm. it was great thank you so much for including it bye bye Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.